Philippians 3. As always, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to get one. Uh, on the back table, my right, your left. In every avenue of life, it's a natural thing to want to progress. As a yet relatively new father, uh, I find my twin girls at the point in their lives where they are quite regularly talking about getting bigger and the privileges that will come with it. There's a great number of things they can't do right now, and yet they anticipate the opportunity to do them as they get bigger, as they uh, get older. When they get bigger, they can tend to the fire in the fireplace. When they get bigger, they can uh, help mom and dad paint. When they get bigger, they can handle the breakable dishes. Uh, My daughters are considering their lives within the context of progression. As they get older, this progression might become more pronounced. They will begin to think about the other aspects of growing up, uh, perhaps a future career or a future spouse, uh, how they would want a house decorated if they had a house of their own. Uh, All of these things rooted in the context of progression. And as those thoughts change into goals, they will be able to frame their lives and their minds around how they can take their desires toward progression and turn them into uh, choices, career choices, uh, direction choices for their life. And this is how life works, right? We have a vision for what we think we would like or what would be good. We count the cost, we set the goals, and we pursue that vision. But how often are we doing this in the realm of our Christian life? How often are we considering the concepts of spiritual progression? When is the last time you considered somebody that was uh, perhaps more mature than you in a spiritual context and say, I want to be like that when I grow up, spiritually speaking? How often do we open the Bible, see something that is there that we aren't, and we say, I want that, and we set spiritual goals, and we seek to get there. That's how we do it in life. We're thinking about progression. We're thinking about maybe someday. Maybe someday, uh, uh, if we save enough money, we can have that. Maybe someday, uh, when I get older, I can do that. Uh, Maybe someday I can travel there. And we have these visions. We have this desire to progress, and we see our lives within the scope of progression when it comes to so many things, but is one of those things your spiritual walk, your relationship with Christ? Have you ever read something in the Bible, recognized you want to be there, you aren't there currently, and you forged a plan to get there? Maturity and success in any context often doesn't just happen. They take effort, sacrifice, They're driven by a vision for what could be and goals on how to get there. And today we're going to consider several passages of Scripture dealing with progression in our Christian life. Now the concept is certainly not one foreign to Scripture. Uh, It's in fact quite pervasive so much so that certainly we won't exhaust the topic this morning. But it is my prayer that uh, the, the references that we do come to this morning will help us to build a framework within which you will operate in this new year. This is the first message of 2016. Uh, Happy New Year uh, to those of you that I hadn't said it to already. And as we're thinking about this time, of course, uh, the, the concept of resolution is, is worn out and, and uh, it has its issues. But the concept of progression, of old things passing away and all All things becoming new um, is a concept that we find in Scripture and we'll address this morning. The text that we're going to walk through is Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 to 16. In this passage, Paul is writing to the church of Philippi and he is uh, warning in this passage against becoming too comfortable in the Christian life and thus resting upon our perceived accomplishments, whether physical or spiritual. And as he looks at um, this concept of who we are in Christ, what Christ has accomplished through us, the danger of perhaps thinking that we are something special or something more than we are. Within this context, 
of Philippians chapter 3, Paul has just listed his own physical virtues. Those things that he had at one point in his life. Uh, He talks about the material and physical accomplishments which he could look at and see as giving him some degree of value in life. He was raised Saul of Tarsus. He was extremely accomplished as a Pharisee. Extremely accomplished in the Jews' religion. He'd made a name for himself in his corner of the world and he had been doing just fine. Enter Jesus Christ. The priorities of Christ aren't the priorities of the world. The expectations of Christ don't mirror the expectations of the world. And when Paul became a servant of Christ, by virtue of his desire to progress toward God, other things had to change. So he says this, And let's read together, beginning in verse 7, we'll read through verse 16 of Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which, I, for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. So in verse 7, Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Paul says that the things which on this earth, um, the, the, the earthly plane in which he lived, uh, and in this material context, those things which were advantageous to him, he, as a follower of Jesus Christ, considered to be lost for Christ. That when Paul got serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ, he took everything that he had and he laid it at Jesus. Feet. Every priority was laid at Jesus' feet. Every possession was laid at Jesus' feet. Every ambition was laid at Jesus' feet. And the idea, as we'll see in the verses that follow, is not that Paul felt divinely compelled to give everything up at that moment, but rather divinely compelled to yield everything. Now, in Paul's case, he would end up giving up a great deal. But there's a major difference between the concept of giving something up and the concept of yielding something, isn't there? To yield something is not inherently to lose it, but rather being willing to lose it. It is to position our hearts in such a way that we are spiritually and emotionally prepared to give up whatever that thing is. And this is what Paul says, that all those things which were materially advantageous, he thus counted to be lost. He readied his heart to give to whatever extent it was asked of him. And then he says in verses 8 and 9, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ." The righteousness which is of God by faith. So Paul says first that he counts those material gains, those things that would position him well in this world as lost for Christ. And in that context, he's speaking of uh, the reality of, of his heritage and of his training and of his position as a Pharisee. And then he says, yea, doubtless, I count all things 
but loss. He heightens this statement, saying that, that he keeps nothing to himself, that he, he doesn't yield most of his life to God, most of his priorities to God, most of his ambitions to God, but then he, he keeps a little bit on the side for himself. He says that he counts all things but loss, yielding everything. And notice the reason for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word excellency there in the text literally means superiority. Paul tells us that by yielding everything, by placing everything at the feet of Christ, by placing everything on the table for Christ, he facilitates a capacity to know Christ in a way that he could not otherwise know him. And he counts this knowledge of Christ as far superior in every way to anything and everything that he has. And this is what drove him to yield his rights. This is what drove him to yield his ambitions and his plans. And the text goes on to tell us that Paul did, in fact, lose those things. That as he yielded his earthly position, his earthly goods, his earthly ambitions, and placed them on the altar of the knowledge of Christ, he suffered those Losses. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. But notice what Paul says then. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things at the end of verse 8, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Yes, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of those earthly things that I had chosen to yield, those earthly things which my human capacity had, com- had positioned me for, But when placed next to the prize of winning Christ, of knowing Christ, of associating myself with Christ, when placed next to the opportunity to thrive in the knowledge of my Savior, all earthly ambition is little more than waste, worthy of little else but to burn in the trash heap of temporal ambition. And in winning Christ, Paul says he is found in Him. He is identified with Christ. He knows Christ in a more real way. Paul's identity has been wrapped up in the identity of Christ. Found, Paul says, not in having his own righteousness, which would be of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. Not having his own merit, but having Christ's merit. When Paul looked at his life, success to him was not when he saw great decisions and successful actions. Success to him was when he could span the events of his life and he could see Christ. And the point that he's making, in ver- uh, as we see it in verse 10 that I may know Him. All of this, suffering the loss, counting it all but loss, yielding it all on the altar, he says, that I may know Christ. That all of the yielding, all of the losing was to know Christ. And he gives the idea of this knowledge within three contexts. He says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. The day Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He claimed victory. Victory over death, he claimed victory over sin. Paul yielded all things to Christ with the goal that by dedicating his life to Christ's life, by by living the life that Christ would have him to live, he might understand and experience in his life the fullest reality of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection toward men. If the resurrection claimed victory over sin, then Paul would yield anything he had to yield in this life to claim Victory over sin. If the resurrection gives us hope in Christ, then Paul wanted to experience the totality of that victory. If the resurrection delivers us from the shame of our guilt and the shame of our sin, then Paul wanted to live within the full freedom of the resurrection as it pertains to the shame of guilt and sin. So he wanted to know the power of the resurrection. He wants to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. As we consider the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, there was much suffering, wasn't there? Not just in his death. Christ suffered scorn. He suffered infamy. He suffered false accusation. He suffered material lack. He suffered slander of his character, slander of his intentions. And then, of course, finally, he suffered that all the way to the cross where he was beaten, bruised. He suffered indignity. He suffered torture and eventual death. 
Paul wanted to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He wanted to bring himself as close to Christ as he could. Not by seeking pain and anguish. We don't go out and ask people to hurt us so that we can know Christ better. We don't go out and inflict pain upon ourselves to know Christ better. We don't go out and ask for problems in order to feel like we are somehow closer to Christ. But by conforming ourselves to Christ so directly so directly to the character of Christ that we would find ourselves in that place of conformity and where we conform with Christ, often we can expect the results Christ received. Paul wasn't some sort of um, masochist. He wasn't interested in hurting himself. He didn't feel as though his suffering would inherently bring him into favor with God. But rather because whatever suffering he endured in the name of Christ would cause him to know the sufferings of Christ and thus find fellowship with Christ. And so Paul says that through experience, by experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection, power over sin and fear and guilt, coupled with the fellowship of his suffering, with as he's going in the direction of Christ, having yielded himself enough to be ready and willing to suffer whatever it takes for Christ... He would be made conformable, he says, to Christ's death. That he would have truly died with Christ. That he would be living a life dead to sin and alive unto Christ. That he would have fully yielded his own rights with deference to Christ's desires. Whatever it takes, Paul says. He says in verse 11, If by any means I might attain Unto the resurrection of the dead. He has an end goal in sight. The day of the resurrection in Christ. On that day, Psalm 17.15 tells us that we will awake in Christ's likeness. On that day, we will be presented to the Father without spot or without wrinkle or without any such thing. And this is the end which Paul pursues. That which we have just read. In verses 7 through 9, that's the plan on how to get there. How can I get to the end with comfort? How can I get to the end and find the glory of the resurrection? We're not talking about salvation here. We'll mention that in just a moment. He says, by counting all things but loss. Being clear about what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that salvation is conditioned upon his capacity to do right. He is not attempting to imply here that if he does not assume a great enough posture of loss or of yieldedness, he will fall short of salvation. We know, Paul makes it clear in every epistle, that salvation is by grace, through faith, and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, by believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. In fact, he mentions in verse 9 that what he seeks is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All throughout Paul's epistles, though, in light of the fact that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and that our standing in Christ is secured through Christ's righteousness, Paul speaks of the manner in which we get to God through Christ. That, though if you're born again by faith alone, you will get there, the manner of your arrival ought to matter to you. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run, that ye may obtain. A race is a competition, and a competition in a race, the, or the, the object of, of a race, the object of that competition is to win. Now today we have races where nobody wins or everybody wins, right? Uh, you have races that are sponsored and if you get the distance, regardless of how fast or how slow, uh, the, your charity gets the money or, or uh, you're, you play soccer but everyone gets the participation trophy and, and there's no winners and there's no losers because whatever. But, but that's, not what, uh, that's not really a race, right? A race is when t- two or more people are competing against each other and somebody wins and everyone else Loses that that's that's a race, and Paul uh, gives this analogy of a race in the Christian life that we are running, and Paul says, "Run with an object in mind. Don't just run. Don't just." Paul doesn't give the implication here that that this is kind of that that sponsored run. 
where we, we all... Now, we're, we're all going to get there if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're going to get to heaven, but your disposition will be different based upon how you live this life. We need to seek to win the race, Paul says. The resurrection is the glorious end to our lives, but the disposition of our lives truly does matter to God. And he says, uh, continuing in in Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse 12, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He admits that he has not yet attained unto the perfection he seeks. The resurrection of the dead, that's the goal. That's when uh, he'll receive his new body. That body will be free from sin. That body will be the one that that he no longer has to keep um, under subjection. That body will be the one that will be delivered from the presence of, of sin and from the sin nature. He says, that's the end goal. That's what I'm seeking. That's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm going toward. But today, I'm going to follow after it. I'm going to run after it. I'm going to pursue that resurrection with all of my heart. Our memory verse for last month, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul obviously wasn't just sitting and saying, okay, I'm just going to ride this thing out until I get home. Paul obviously wasn't saying, alright, I'm just going to walk, walk the race and get my participation trophy. He said, I am going to die to Christ and I am going to live within the power of the resurrection. I am going to live out. I am going to follow after. I am going to seek and going to pursue that for which Christ apprehended me. The end of the journey is the resurrection, the day we are truly dead from the sins of the world and alive unto Christ. The day when the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life finally falls away. And if that's my end, Paul says, and if I have the capacity through the Spirit to pursue it today, I'm going to. By God's grace, I'm going to pursue it and I might just apprehend. That word literally meaning to take eagerly in the Greek. I might just apprehend a taste of Christ's righteousness on this earth. A taste of the resurrected life. I might just be conformed to Christ a little bit more so that God is more glorified in me. I might just shine into the praise and the honor and the glory of God's grace as he would say, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.7 at the appearing of Christ. I might just shine a little brighter. I might just be a better example to the world around me. I am going to apprehend that for which I have been apprehended of Christ Jesus. It is God's grace that pursued us through Christ. It is His grace that saved us. It is His grace that has apprehended us. It is the righteousness of Christ that has grabbed a hold of us. And Paul says, if it is the righteousness of Christ that has grabbed me, I'm going to now seek to grab it. That's what he's saying there. I'm going to seek to apprehend that for which I am apprehended. That which has taken a hold of me, the righteousness of Christ, now I'm going to pursue it with all my heart. And Paul's point is finalized as we get into verses 13 through 16. He says in verses 13 and 14, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He says, I haven't gotten it yet. Don't get me wrong, Philippian church. I haven't arrived. But this one thing I do, this, this is what I do, this is what I know. Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I haven't apprehended, but I'm going to forget the past, and I'm going to reach toward that which is ahead. This, this is what I'm going to do today. I haven't made it to perfection, I won't until I die, but I'm reaching for it, and as I reach for it, this is today. Forget the things which are before, reach toward that which is ahead. Now this could be understood in two different contexts. Paul doesn't really explain himself. It could mean forgetting those things which happened before I was a believer, but it also could mean forgetting the previous progress, the previous victories, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. When you're running a race, even if you run the first part well, your mind must be focused on that which is ahead. No one can live in the light of past successes or failures, lest he find himself distracted and thus failing at the present task at hand. Paul says, forgetting the past, 
I'm going to reach toward that which is in front of me. I'm going to press toward the mark, toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ, constantly seeking the prize and seeking to make myself conformable to the death of Christ. Paul says it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We talked about this just recently. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race which is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. To run the Christian race is not simply to grit your teeth, hone your skills of determination, and go for it. The Christian race is not one run through your strength, it is run through Christ's strength. The Christian race is not about what you can do, it's about what Christ can do when you get out of the way. It's about what Christ could do with a life that truly counts all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what Paul is saying as he says, lay aside the weights. The Christian life is one that is led of the Spirit of God. And it's not so much us becoming stronger as much as it is shedding the weight of sin so that Christ can get stronger in us. And we mature as we lay aside the weights. We set aside the things in our lives that serve only to slow down our race toward perfection in Christ. And so we find in verses 15 and 16, back in Philippians 3, Paul says, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind. The same thing. If you are complete in Christ, Paul says, then have the mindset of counting all things but loss and laying aside every weight. And to whatever degree you have this mindset, Paul says, God will reveal it unto you. To whatever degree you fail in this mindset, God will reveal that to you as well. The Spirit of God will reveal to you those areas of your lives where you have not counted loss. The Spirit of God will reveal to you those things where you are not yielding them. Paul says, so you can trust that. We oftentimes get into this conundrum. God, I I wonder if there's things I don't know that are holding me back. And, And without question, we have blind spots. There are blind spots in our lives. And oftentimes if we're seeking perfection, if we're seeking to be complete in Christ and we're still living with blind spots, it's because we've got other things that God is working on. And when He, he finishes the one, then he'll, he'll reveal to us others. But God is not going to just let you live in the darkness to your own problems. If, if there are needs, if, if you don't have a mindset of counting all things but loss in certain areas of your life, trust the Lord, He'll reveal them to you. If you're willing to receive, if you have counted it but loss, if you have yielded it, trust the Lord and and, and, and He'll reveal to you what you need to do. Nevertheless, Paul says, in those areas where you have done well, where you have already attained, to whatever degree you have succeeded in yielding yourself and your priorities to Christ, he says, keep it up. But always with an eye toward that which is ahead. And this brings us to the point... Uh, that I would like to, to dwell on this morning. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know your destination. You will one day be free from sin and live in the likeness of Christ. You will receive a resurrected body. That body will be uh, perfection. And you will live in Christ's glory. So you know that you're going to cross the finish line, but the question is, how is the race going? You know you have obtained... Those areas of your lives where you found victory. But where do you fall short? What can you pursue in 2016 that will make you more like Christ? If we aren't careful, we as Christians will assume this posture of apathy. Where we simply coast through this Christian life 
perfectly content with our failures and our weaknesses. Or we say, well, if God wants to do something, He'll do it. And so we just kind of do our thing and then things come up and we grow maybe or we don't. And, and we, we can just kind of float through this Christian life. But we don't do that in any other aspect of our life. I mean, the millennials kind of do. Uh, but it, we're not supposed to do that, right? There's still a lot of millennials that are living in their parents' basement not really doing anything. But, but that's not really how life works, right? That's not really what happens. We, we grow up and, and we have goals and we, we, we envision something and it doesn't always go as planned. And sometimes there are problems and so there are bumps along the road and we need help and those sorts of things. But it, we're talking about the mindset, the mindset of progression. We have that in our lives, We think toward things in the future, things that we want, places we desire to be, the person we want to become. Are you thinking that way as a Christian? We know what we do well for Christ. We know what we don't do well for Christ. And are we just going to resign ourselves to our victories and our defeats, or are we going to seek to grow? Paul's attitude, the the attitude exemplified here, He says, whatever I have already obtained, I I continue it, but that's in the past. Let's reach ahead. Let's progress to something new. Let's not just know the mark that is ahead, let's press toward the mark. In Hebrews 6.1, Paul would say this, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Paul says here, it's great that you know doctrine. It's great that you're a believer. That you have the doctrine of Christ. And and much of that had been presented in Hebrews up to that point. Now let's progress. Let's go on unto perfection. That word meaning completion. Let's become more. Let's do more. Let's love Christ more. Let's serve Christ more. And as we consider this, I'm going to give you five points about pursuing Christ from Philippians 3 that we can learn and Lord willing take with us into the new year. Point number one, put it all on the altar. Put it all on the altar. This is not only only our first point, but but this is the most essential point. Without this point, the rest of it uh, becomes almost moot. To whatever degree Paul's exhortation in Philippians 3 does not affect the way we live our Christian lives, that is the degree to which we have decided to maintain our way rather than yield our way to Christ. The degree to which we have placed our lives on the altar and the degree to which we have decided to keep certain things, certain parts of our lives for ourselves. The call to Jesus Christ to his disciples was this in Mark 10, 29-31. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and, the, and in the world to come, eternal life." But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. This was the promise of Jesus Christ, that the blessing of yieldedness would exponentially outweigh the reality of loss. That though in this life you might have persecutions, you will not be alone in those persecutions, for you will have a hundredfold men and women who love Christ, who are suffering through it with you, who are going through these things with you, who will exhort you, who will love you, and who will stand with you before the throne one day. And then eternal life that is to come. To place myself last in this life is to be first in the life to come. But it begins with yieldedness, counting all things but loss, placing everything on the table for God, not holding anything back, not holding back your family or your friends or your job or your house or your vehicles or your health or your children or your future, your needs, your wants, your desires, your ambitions, your dreams, your longings. Don't hold any of it back. Place it all on the altar. Give it all to God. If you can get to the point where you are truly willing to place everything at the feet of Jesus Christ, you have not only come farther than most Christians will in their entire life, but you will be in a place where God can shape you and use you in a unique way. 
So what are you holding back from Him? What have you been unwilling to give up? That friend? Those possessions? Your future? The future of your children? Those particular amusements? Your time? The vision of what your family should be or look like? Or the vision of what kind of a career you ought to have? Your ambition for success? Your desire for security and comfort? All of these things are things that we can hoard to ourselves, that we can take from God. And in doing so, we're not just taking it to us, but we're taking away from ourselves the blessings that come with yieldedness. What haven't you yielded to Him that is keeping you back from the kind of spiritual success that Christ wants you to have? So put it all on the altar. Number two, lay aside the weights. Lay aside the weights. Once you've put it on the altar, it's time to lay aside the weights. The things which are keeping you away from spiritual success. Just because you have yielded it to God doesn't mean He's going to ask it of you. But as you yield, there is little doubt that the Spirit of God will make clear certain things which need to go. Certain priorities, certain desires, certain amusements, certain friends, whatever it might be. And now it's time to shed the weight. If you're going to run a successful race, you need to shed whatever is going to weigh you down. Whatever priorities don't line up with your goal. Whatever interests are out of sync with your direction. And this isn't just a sin, not sin thing. We always start with, is it sin? But if it's sin, then it's already, I mean, that's obvious. But sometimes the weights aren't sin. I mean, cookies are not a bad thing. Cookies are a fantastic thing. Cookies are delicious. Your pastor loves cookies. I love cookies. But if I'm going to run a marathon in the spring, cookies are not the best way for me to prepare. And if I am going to prepare my body for something, I have a goal. I want to run a marathon. I want to do well in that marathon. I don't just want the participation trophy. I want something more than the participation trophy. I am going to work hard at winning this race. Then I have to start shedding some things from my life. I have to take away the things that aren't conducive to my goals. And if my goal is to stay in shape, then I have to shed the cookies. As well as several other things, but for your pastor, it would be cookies. The cookies would be the problem, but that has to go. And it's not because cookies are bad. They're fantastic. It's because cookies aren't conducive to my goal. So, we have goals. We have a mark that we're headed toward, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And perhaps over the course of this year, you, and that's my exhortation this morning, will set spiritual goals. And it will be time to... to, to Make some decisions based upon those spiritual goals. Uh, And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. And it might be that you need to shed some things. And it's not that they're sinful things, but they need to go. Because they're going to stand between you and your goal. Things which distract you. Take time away from you. That you should be giving to far more spiritually important things. You say, I want to do that, and this is keeping me from it. It's not a bad thing, but it's taking too much of my time away from serving the Lord, so it's got to go. Things which keep you away from ministry opportunities. I want to do this, but it's when I could be doing something for the Lord instead, that needs to go. It's not wrong, but it needs to go, because I should be doing these things for the Lord. So shed the weight. Count it but loss. I'm willing to give up those time wasters. I'm willing to give up those amusements. I'm willing to give up those, those fun things. I'm willing to give up those, those friends. I'm willing to give up my time with them. It doesn't mean you have to, but if you're willing, when it gets in the way of the goal, it's got to go. We've all been in these places in our lives. I'm sure... Ed and Jenny have run into a few of those things as they've been building this house. Priorities have shifted. And so things that would normally be in their routine had to go. They had to shed the weight so that they could prioritize the house. Rosie and Tim dealt with that this semester. They have grades. They have social lives. But they're there to get an education. And they had to make decisions. I don't know how they did on those decisions, but they had to make decisions. Am I going to 
pursue the grade or am I going to pursue other? Am I going to pursue this opportunity or that opportunity? And if they wanted to get a certain grade, at some point they had to say, well, it's not wrong to spend time with my friends, but I need to lay aside that weight so that I can study, so that I can get the grade. We already read 1 Corinthians 9.24. Let me fill in the gap here. In 9.24, remember, um, Paul said... Everyone runs in the race, but only one man receives the prize. Look what he says in verses 25 through 27. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate, under control, in all things. Now they do it, he says, those, those people running a race, they do it to receive a corruptible crown. They do it to receive a medal or a crown on their heads as it was during the time of the Romans. But we an incorruptible. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The man who strives for success is temperate. He disciplines himself in such a way that he reaches the goal that he seeks. If you don't discipline yourself, you will never reach your goals. If you don't set goals, you'll never reach goals. If you don't discipline yourself, you'll never reach those goals that you do set. Paul says if we're going to succeed in this Christian life, we need to see the mark, we need to reach toward the mark, and we need to lay aside the things that get in the way of it. So put it all on the altar and then lay aside the weights. What weights are there in your life? I'm not talking just about sin. It's implicit. If you've got sin in your life, get it out. The end of that sermon. What other weights might there be? What's standing between you and spiritual success? Number three, forget the past. There are virtues to our past. By this point, I don't mean, and I don't believe Paul means, that everything that has ever happened we need to put out of our minds. We just got through the Christmas season. The Christmas season is about remembering something that has happened. And there's great benefit in that. But there are two different elements of our spiritual past that could be a hindrance to our spiritual future. The first uh, and most important is, is certainly forgiven sin. By virtue of our redemption in Christ, we are forgiven. As believers, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you were saved, the Bible says, old things passed away, all things have become new. You have been reconciled to God. You've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. As a believer, the Bible says, when you sin, you fall out of fellowship with God and that that fellowship is immediately restored. There is immediate restoration to fellowship. By virtue of confession. But we humans are a funny lot. In that sometimes we feel like if we don't suffer enough for our wrongdoing, then we aren't truly sorry. That if I'm not suffering or if I'm not in anguish, then I'm not going to look like I'm sorry. And so was I sorry? Will God know that I'm sorry if I don't spend all this time wallowing in, my, in, in the sinful choices that I've made? Kind of the idea of penance. So we are tempted to kick ourselves for our own sin, to spiritually hold ourselves in self-condemnation, simply to prove to ourselves that we are in fact sorry for what we've done. But Christian, to whatever degree you live under the condemnation of sins that you have confessed, that are forgiven, you are resting under false condemnation, under a condemnation for sins for which you have already been released. If God has forgiven you, you have no need and and no right, spiritually or biblically, to hold yourself under condemnation. Perhaps it is that one of the things weighing you down is past sin. Sin which you have confessed, sin which God has forgiven, because the Bible says He's faithful and just to do so, but sin for which you won't let go of yourself. And it needs to be forgotten. You need to... Forget that which is behind. The second element we need to forget is on the other extreme. It's great to remember the successes of years gone by. It's important. In fact, I've begun writing those things down. The blessings that the Lord has brought. 
as long as you keep them in perspective. The spiritual successes of 2015 cannot sustain you through 216 spiritually. You cannot simply rest upon the fact that you have served God in the past as the basis by which you think you're doing well today. In business, the mantra is often, if you're not growing, you're dying. Well, in the Christian life, you're, you're either progressing or regressing. If you're standing still, you're moving farther away. A stagnant Christian life is not something God has intended for us. We can sit back on our previous successes and think that we've done our part, In a mile-long race, a good quarter-mile time is essential to victory. But at the end of the first quarter-mile, you can't just say, Wow, I had a really good quarter-mile, I guess I'll just cruise the rest of the way and be fine. You've got to have a good second quarter, and a good third quarter, and a good fourth quarter if you want to win the race. Now, I hope you had a good 2015. I hope it was a year of spiritual success. I hope it was a year of spiritual growth. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a bad year. Maybe it was a year of spiritual regression. I'd like to, to you know, think that we all have something really good to build off of. But a good 2015 does not guarantee a good 2016. Nor does a bad 2015 guarantee a bad 2016. Forgetting those things which are behind. Reaching for that which is ahead. This is a new lap. And it needs to be run well. So put it all on the altar. Lay aside the weights. Forget the past. Press toward the mark. Number four. And this is the point, right? Press toward the mark. See the goal and go for it. But this is where I want to make a request of you. The mark, as Paul says, is the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's the resurrection of the dead. It is that perfection in Christ. But along the way, one of the best things we can do for ourselves is to place checkpoints to give us manageable goals to help us progress. So you want to be like Christ, and indeed you need to be like Christ. Well, Rome wasn't built in a day. The old adage, how do you eat a whale? Same way you did anything else, right? One bite at a time. So what's your bite? The race isn't run in a moment. We need goals. And I would encourage you to set goals for this year. Identify where you are spiritually. Identify where you could be, would be, want to be. Maybe you want to be a better witness for Christ. Well, a manageable goal. Go back to that back table, get some tracts. Say, I'm going to pass out 10 of these a month. 120 a year. Set a goal. 10 a month. You can do that. 30 days. One tract every three days, somewhere, anywhere. You could do that if you wanted to be a better witness for Christ. Maybe you want to read your Bible more often. Well, we've got those Bible reading schedules on that back table. I know my wife has gotten in with some of the younger kids on that. Uh, She and I read together the last couple of days. uh, Staying on track for that schedule. I encourage you, if you're already behind on that and you've said you'll do it, get ahead today. If you get too far behind too quickly, it gets very discouraging. If you want to do that, do that. Maybe that's going to mean shedding some weight. Well, I never have enough time in my day to read the Bible. What do you have enough time for? So maybe that's a goal. Start with a day, then the next day, then the next day. Identify time wasters. Identify virtuous things that could take the place of those if you want to use your time more effectively. Replace the time wasters with virtue. I would encourage everyone to have spiritual goals for this year. I'd encourage you to make them soon. Find ways that you can accomplish those goals and then press toward them. Fathers, maybe this is something you can do as a family. Our family wants to be here by the end of the year. We want to have done this. We want to have grown in this way. We want to have learned this. We want to have understood this better. Whatever it might be. Maybe it's a a theological topic. I want to understand better... The resurrection. I want to understand better my own salvation. That's my goal. Let's pursue it. And this is what it means to be the body of Christ. Set goals to help each other along in those goals to edify one another in love. So put it all on the altar. Lay aside the weights. Forget the past. 
Press toward the mark. However you want to do it, press toward that mark. Finally, just keep doing right. Faithfulness. Paul said in verse 16, Whereto ye have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Don't allow new focus to derail past victories. Don't allow your focus on one spiritual avenue to derail the victories you've already won. And in maintaining the spiritual victories which you've already won, the things which you already do well, coupled with setting goals for a new level of a spiritual walk with Christ, we're doing exactly what Christ calls us to do. We are progressing toward perfection. We are moving on toward perfection. We are pressing toward the mark. So how are we doing today? Was 2015 a year of regression? Stagnation? Progression? What is 2016 going to be for you? Do you have goals? Do you have a plan? Are you just going to wing it and see how it goes? Might work. Or you might find yourself in the same spiritual spot at this time next year that you are right now. May I encourage you not to think that way. I encourage you to have a plan that will help you progress toward perfection. To attain unto Christ that we may apprehend the grace by which we have already been apprehended of Christ. At the beginning of our time together, I said something that I'd like us to close with this morning as well. I said this, maturity and success in any context often don't just happen. They take effort and sacrifice. They are driven by a vision for what could be and by goals on how to get there. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we are complete in Christ. Your word tells us as much. Thank you that by your grace we will one day stand before you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in Christ. And yet, Lord, your word tells us to move unto perfection, to press toward the mark. And my prayer this morning is that you, through your Holy Spirit, would lay upon each of us areas of our lives where we can press, where we can pursue perfection, where we can grow that we would share those goals, that we would help each other reach those goals, that we would attain unto those goals for your glory and for our best good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.